This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3, Chapter 10 Oh, the joy of young ideas painted on the mind in the warm glowing colors fancy spreads on objects not yet known when all is new and all is lovely. Sacred Dramas We now return to Languedoc and to the mansion of Count de Villefort, the nobleman who succeeded to an estate of the Marquis de Villeroy situated near the monastery of St. Clair. It may be recollected that this chateau was uninhabited when St. Hubert and his daughter were in the neighborhood, and that the former was much affected on discovering himself to be so near Chateau Le Blanc, a place concerning which the good old La Voisin afterwards dropped some hints that had alarmed Emily's curiosity. It was in the year 1584, the beginning of that, in which St. Aubert died, that Francis Bouvier, Count de Villefort, came into possession of the mansion and extensive domain called Chateau Le Blanc situated in the province of Languedoc, on the shore of the Mediterranean. This estate, which during some centuries had belonged to his family, now descended to him on the decease of his relative, the Marquis de Villeroy, who had latterly been a man of reserved manners and austere character. Circumstances, which together with the duties of his profession, that often called him into the field, had prevented any degree of intimacy with his cousin, the Count de Villefort. For many years they had known little of each other, and the Count received the first intelligence of his death, which happened in a distant part of France, together with the instruments that gave him possession of the domain Chateau Le Blanc. But it was not till the following year that he determined to visit that estate when he designed to pass the autumn there. The scenes of Chateau Le Blanc often came to his remembrance, heightened by the touches which a warm imagination gives to the recollection of early pleasures, for many years before, in the lifetime of the Marchioness, and at that age when the mind is particularly sensible to impressions of gaiety and delight, he had once visited this spot, and though he had passed a long intervening period amidst the vexations and tumults of public affairs which too frequently corrode the heart, and vitiate the taste. The shades of Languedoc and the grandeur of its distant scenery had never been remembered by him with indifference. During many years the chateau had been abandoned by the late Marquis, and being inhabited only by an old steward and his wife, had been suffered to fall much into decay. To superintend the repairs that would be requisite to make it a comfortable residence had been a principal motive of the Count for passing the autumnal months in Languedoc, and neither the remonstrances or the tears of the countess, for on urgent occasions she would weep, were powerful enough to overcome his determination. She prepared, therefore, to obey the command which she could not conquer, and to resign the gay assemblies of Paris, where her beauty was generally unrivaled and won the applause to which her wit had but feeble claim, for the twilight canopy of woods, the lonely grandeur of mountains, and the solemnity of gothic halls, and of long, long galleries which echoed only the solitary step of a domestic, or the measured clink that ascended from the great clock, the ancient monitor of the hall below. 
From these melancholy expectations she endeavored to relieve her spirits by recollecting all that she had ever heard concerning the joyous vintage of the plains of Languedoc, but there, alas, no airy forms would bound to the gay melody of Parisian dances, and a view of the rustic festivities of peasants could afford little pleasure to a heart in which even the feelings of ordinary benevolence had long since decayed under the corruptions of luxury. The Count had a son and a daughter, the children of a former marriage, who he designed should accompany him to the south of France. Henri, who was in his twentieth year, was in the French service, and Blanche, who was not yet eighteen, had been hitherto confined to a convent, where she had been placed immediately on her father's second marriage. The present Countess, who had neither sufficient ability or inclination to superintend the education of her daughter-in-law, had advised this step and the dread of superior beauty had since urged her to employ every art that might prevail on the Count to prolong the period of Blanche's seclusion. It was, therefore, with extreme mortification that she now understood he would no longer submit on this subject, yet it afforded her some consolation to consider that though the Lady Blanche would emerge from her convent, the shades of the country would, for some time, veil her beauty from the public eye. On the morning which commenced the journey, the postillion stopped at the convent, by the Count's order, to take up Blanche, whose heart beat with delight at the prospect of novelty and freedom now before her. As the time of her departure drew nigh, her impatience had increased, and the last night, during which she counted every note of every hour, had appeared the most tedious of any she had ever known. The morning light at length dawned. The matin bell rang. She heard the nuns descending from their chambers and she started from a sleepless pillow to welcome the day which was to emancipate her from the severities of a cloister and introduce her to a world where pleasure was ever smiling and goodness ever blessed, where, in short, nothing but pleasure and goodness reigned. When the bell of the great gate rang and the sound was followed by that of carriage wheels, she ran with a palpitating heart to her lattice and perceiving her father's carriage in the court below danced with airy steps along the gallery, where she was met by a nun with a summons from the abbess. In the next moment she was in the parlour, and in the presence of the countess, who now appeared to her as an angel that was to lead her into happiness. But the emotions of the countess on beholding her were not in unison with those of Blanche, who had never appeared so lovely as at this moment, when her countenance, animated by the lightning smile of joy, glowed with the beauty of happy innocence. After conversing for a few minutes with the abbess, the countess rose to go. This was a moment which Blanche had anticipated with such eager expectation, the summit from which she looked down upon the fairy land of happiness, and surveyed all its enchantment. Was it a moment then for tears of regret? Yet it was so. She turned with an altered and dejected countenance to her young companions, who were come to bid her farewell, and wept. Even my lady abbess, so stately and so solemn, she saluted with a degree of sorrow, which an hour before she would have believed it impossible to feel, and which may be accounted for by considering how reluctantly we all part, even with unpleasing objects, when the separation is consciously forever. Again she kissed the poor nuns, and then followed the countess from that spot with tears, 
which she expected to leave only with smiles. But the presence of her father and a variety of objects on the road soon engaged her attention and dissipated the shade which tender regret had thrown upon her spirits. Inattentive to a conversation which was passing between the countess and a mademoiselle Byrne, her friend, Blanche sat, lost in pleasing reverie, as she watched the clouds floating silently along the blue expanse, now veiling the sun and stretching their shadows along the distant scene, and then disclosing all his brightness. The journey continued to give Blanche inexpressible delight, for new scenes of nature were every instant opening to her view, and her fancy became stored with gay and beautiful imagery. It was on the evening of the seventh day that the travellers came within view of Chateau Le Blanc, the romantic beauty of whose situation strongly impressed the imagination of Blanche, who observed, with sublime astonishment, the Pyrenean mountains, which had been seen only at a distance during the day, now rising within a few leagues, with their wild cliffs and immense precipices, which the evening clouds floating round them now disclosed and again veiled. The setting rays that tinged their snowy summits with a rosette hue touched their lower points with the various coloring, while the bluish tint that pervaded their shadowy recesses gave the strength of contrast to the splendor of light. The plains of Languedoc, blushing with the purple vine and diversified with groves of mulberry, almond, and olives, spread far to the north and to the east. To the south appeared the Mediterranean, clear as crystal, and blue as the heavens it reflected, bearing on its bosom vessels whose white sails caught the sunbeams and gave animation to the scene. On a high promontory, washed by the waters of the Mediterranean, stood her father's mansion, almost secluded from the eye by woods of intermingled pine, oak, and chestnut, which crowned the eminence, and sloped towards the plains on one side, while on the other they extended to a considerable distance along the seashores. As Blanche drew nearer, the Gothic features of this ancient mansion successively appeared. First an embattled turret, rising above the trees, then the broken arch of an immense gateway, retiring beyond them, and she almost fancied herself approaching a castle, such as often celebrated in an early story, where the knights look out from the battlements on some champion below, who clothed in black armor comes with his champions to rescue the fair lady of his love from the oppression of his rival, a sort of legends to which she had once or twice obtained access in the library of her convent, that, like many others, belonging to the monks, was stored with these relics of romantic fiction. The carriages stopped at a gate, which led into the domain of the chateau, but which was now fastened, and the great bell, that had formerly served to announce the arrival of strangers, having long since fallen from its station, a servant climbed over the ruined part of the adjoining wall to give notice to those within of the arrival of their lord. As Blanche leaned from the coach window, she resigned herself to the sweet and gentle emotions which the hour and scenery awakened. The sun had now left the earth, and twilight began to darken the mountains, while the distant waters, reflecting the blush that still glowed in the west, appeared like a line of light skirting the horizon. The low murmur of waves breaking on the shore came in the breeze 
and now and then the melancholy dashing of oars was feebly heard from a distance. She was suffered to indulge her pensive mood, for the thoughts of the rest of the party were silently engaged upon the subjects of their several interests. Meanwhile, the Countess, reflecting, with regret, upon the gay parties she had left at Paris, surveyed with disgust what she thought the gloomy woods and solitary wildness of the scene, and shrinking from the prospect of being shut up in an old castle, was prepared to meet every object with displeasure. The feelings of Henri were somewhat similar to those of the Countess. He gave a mournful sigh to the delights of the capital, and to the remembrance of a lady who, he believed, had engaged his infections, and who had certainly fascinated his imagination. But the surrounding country, and the mode of life on which he was entering, had, for him, at least the charm of novelty, and his regret was softened by the gay expectations of youth. The gates being at length unbarred, the carriage moved slowly on, under spreading chestnuts that almost excluded the remains of day, following what had been formerly a road, but which now, overgrown with luxuriant vegetation, could be traced only by the boundary, formed by the trees on either side, and which wound for near half a mile among the woods, before it reached the chateau. This was the very avenue that St. Hubert and Emily had formerly entered on their first arrival in the neighborhood, with the hope of finding a house that would receive them for the night, and had so abruptly quitted on perceiving the wildness of the place, and a figure which the postillion had fancied was a robber. "'What a dismal place is this!' exclaimed the Countess, as the carriage penetrated the deeper recesses of the woods. "'Surely, my lord!' You do not mean to pass all the autumn in this barbarous spot. One ought to bring hither a cup of waters of Leith, that the remembrance of pleasanter scenes may not heighten, at least, the natural dreariness of these. I shall be governed by circumstances, madame, said the Count. This barbarous spot was inhabited by my ancestors. The carriage now stopped at the chateau, where, at the door of the great hall, appeared the old steward and the Parisian servants who had been sent to prepare the chateau waiting to receive their lord. Lady Blanche now perceived that the edifice was not built entirely in the Gothic style, but that it had additions of a more modern date. The large and gloomy hall, however, into which she now entered, was entirely Gothic, and sumptuous tapestry, which it was now too dark to distinguish, hung upon the walls, and depicted scenes from some of the ancient provincial romances. A vast Gothic window, embroidered with clematis and eglantine, that ascended to the south, led the eye, now that the casements were thrown open, through this verdant shade, over a sloping lawn, to the tops of dark woods that hung upon the brow of the promontory. Beyond appeared the waters of the Mediterranean, stretching far to the south and to the east, where they were lost in the horizon, while to the northeast they were bounded by the luxuriant shores of Languedoc and Provence, enriched with wood and gay with vines and sloping pastures, and to the southwest by the majestic Pyrenees, now fading from the eye beneath the gradual gloom. Blanche, as she crossed the hall, stopped a moment to observe this lovely prospect, which the evening twilight obscured yet did not conceal. 
but she was quickly awakened from the complacent delight which this scene had diffused upon her mind by the countess who discontented with every object around and impatient for refreshment and repose hastened forward to a large parlour whose cedar wainscot narrow pointed casements and dark ceiling of carved cypress wood gave it an aspect of peculiar gloom which the dingy green velvet of the chairs and couches fringed with tarnished gold had once been designed to enliven while the countess inquired for refreshment the count attended by his son went to look over some part of the chateau and lady blanche reluctantly remained to witness the discontent and ill-humour of her stepmother how long have you lived in this desolate place said her ladyship to the old housekeeper who came to pay her duty above twenty years your ladyship on the next feast of st jerome how happened it that you have lived here so long and almost alone too i understood that the chateau had been shut up for some years yes madame it was for many years after my late lord the count went to the wars but it is above twenty years since I and my husband came into his service. The place is so large, and has of late been so lonely that we were lost in it, and after some time we went to live in a cottage at the end of the woods near some of the tenants, and came to look after the chateau every now and then. When my lord returned to France from the wars, he took a dislike to the place and never came to live here again, and so he was satisfied with our remaining at the cottage. Alas, alas, how the chateau is changed from what it once was. What delight my late lady used to take in it. I well remember when she came here a bride, and how fine it was. Now it has been neglected so long, and has gone into such decay. I shall never see those days again. The countess appeared to be somewhat offended by the thoughtless simplicity with which the old woman regretted former times. Dorothy added, but the chateau will now be inhabited, and cheerful again. Not all the world would tempt me to live in it alone. Well, the experiment will not be made, I believe, said the countess, displeased that her own silence had been unable to awe the loquacity of this rustic old housekeeper, now spared from further attendance by the entrance of the count, who said he had been viewing part of the chateau, and found that it would require considerable repairs and some alterations before it would be perfectly comfortable as a place of residence. "'I'm sorry to hear it, my lord,' replied the countess. "'And why sorry, madame? "'Because the place will ill repay your trouble, "'and were it even a paradise, "'it would be insufferable at such a distance from Paris.' "'The count made no reply, "'but walked abruptly to a window. "'There are windows, my lord, "'but they neither admit entertainment or light. "'They show only a scene of savage nature.' "'I am at a loss, madame,' said the Count, "'to conjecture what you mean by savage nature. "'Do those plains, or those woods, "'or that fine expanse of water, deserve the name?' "'Those mountains certainly do, my lord,' rejoined the Countess, "'pointing to the Pyrenees. "'And this chateau, though not a work of rude nature, "'is, to my taste at least, one of savage art.' "'The Count coloured highly. "'This place, madame,' was the work of my ancestors, said he, and you must allow me to say that your present conversation discovers neither good taste or good manners. Blanche, 
now shocked at an altercation which appeared to be increasing to a serious disagreement, rose to leave the room, when her mother's woman entered it, and the countess immediately desiring to be shown to her apartment withdrew, attended by Mademoiselle Byrne. Lady Blanche, it being not yet dark, took this opportunity of exploring new scenes, and leaving the parlour, she passed from the hall into a wide gallery, whose walls were decorated by marble pilasters, which supported an arched roof composed of a rich mosaic work. Through a distant window that seemed to terminate the gallery, were seen the purple clouds of evening and a landscape whose features, thinly veiled in twilight, no longer appeared distinctly, but blended into one grand mass, stretched to the horizon, colored only with a tint of solemn gray. The gallery terminated in a saloon, to which the window she had seen through an open door belonged, but the increasing dusk permitted her only an imperfect view of this apartment, which seemed to be magnificent and of modern architecture, though it had been either suffered to fall into decay, or had never been properly finished. The windows, which were numerous and large, descended low, and afforded a very extensive, and what Blanche's fancy represented to be, a very lovely prospect and she stood for some time surveying the grey obscurity, and depicting imaginary woods and mountains, valleys and rivers, on this scene of night. Her solemn sensations, rather assisted than interrupted by the distant bark of a watchdog, and by the breeze as it trembled upon the light foliage of the shrubs. Now and then appeared for a moment among the woods a cottage light, and at length was heard afar off the evening bell of a convent, dying on the air. When she withdrew her thoughts from these subjects of fanciful delight, the gloom and silence of the saloon somewhat awed her, and having sought the door of the gallery and pursued, for a considerable time, a dark passage, she came to a hall, but one totally different from that she had formerly seen. By twilight, admitted through an open portico, she could just distinguish this apartment to be a very light and airy architecture and then it was paved with white marble, pillars of which supported the roof that rose into arches built in the Moorish style. While Blanche stood on the steps of this portico, the moon rose over the sea and gradually disclosed in partial light the beauties of the eminence on which she stood. Whence a lawn, now rude and overgrown with high grass, sloped to the woods that, almost surrounding the chateau, extended in a grand sweep down the southern sides of the promontory to the very margin of the ocean. Beyond the woods, on the north side, appeared a long tract of plains of Languedoc, and to the east the landscape she had before dimly seen with the towers of a monastery, illumined by the moon, rising over dark groves. The soft and shadowy tint that overspread the scene, the waves undulating in the moonlight, and their low measured murmurs on the beach were circumstances that united to elevate the unaccustomed mind of Blanche to enthusiasm. And have I lived in this glorious world so long, said she, and never till now beheld such a prospect, never experienced these delights? Every peasant girl on my father's domain has viewed from her infancy the face of nature, has ranged at liberty her romantic wilds, while I have been shut in a cloister from the view of these beautiful appearances, which were designed to enchant all eyes, 
and awaken all hearts. How can the poor nuns and friars feel the full fervor of devotion if they never see the sun rise or set? Never till this evening did I know what true devotion is, for never before did I see the sun sink below the vast earth. Tomorrow, for the first time in my life, I will see it rise. Oh, who would live in Paris to look upon black walls and dirty streets, when in the country they might gaze on blue heavens and all the green earth? This enthusiastic soliloquy was interrupted by a rustling noise in the hall, and while the loneliness of the place made her sensible to fear, she thought she perceived something moving between the pillars. For a moment, she continued silently observing it, till ashamed of her ridiculous apprehensions, she recollected courage enough to demand who was there. "'Oh, my young lady, is it you?' said the old housekeeper, who has come to shut the windows. "'I am glad it is you.' The manner in which she spoke this, with a faint breath rather surprised Blanche, who said, "'You seem frightened, Dorothy. What is the matter?' "'No, not frightened, mademoiselle.' replied Dorothy, hesitating and trying to appear composed. But I am old, and a little matter startles me. The Lady Blanche smiled at the distinction. I am glad that my Lord Count is come to live at the Chateau, Mademoiselle, continued Dorothy, for it has been many a year deserted and dreary enough now. The place will look a little as it used to when my poor lady was alive. Blanche inquired how long it was since the Marchioness died. "'Alas, my lady,' replied Dorothy, "'so long that I have ceased to count the years. "'The place, to my mind, has mourned ever since, "'and I am sure my lord's vassals have. "'But you have lost yourself, mademoiselle. "'Shall I show you to the other side of the chateau?' Blanche inquired how long this part of the edifice had been built. "'Soon after my lord's marriage, ma'am,' replied Dorothy. The place was large enough without this addition, for many rooms of the old building were even then never made use of, and my lord had a princely household, too. But he thought the ancient mansion gloomy, and gloomy enough it is. Lady Blanche now desired to be shown to the inhabited part of the chateau, and as the passages were entirely dark, Dorothy conducted her along the edge of the lawn to the opposite side of the edifice, where, a door opening into the great hall, she was met by Mademoiselle Byrne. "'Where have you been so long?' said she. "'I have begun to think some wonderful adventure had befallen you, and that the giant of this enchanted castle, or a ghost, which no doubt haunts it, had conveyed you through a trap-door into some subterranean vault, whence you was never to return.' "'No,' replied Blanche, laughingly. "'You seem to love adventures so well that I leave them for you to achieve.' Well, I am willing to achieve them, provided I am allowed to describe them. My dear Mademoiselle Byrne, said Henri, as you met her at the door of the parlor, no ghost of these days would be so savage as to impose silence on you. Our ghosts are more civilized than to condemn a lady to a purgatory, severe even, than their own, be it what it may. Mademoiselle Byrne replied only by a laugh, and the Count, now entering the room, supper was served, during which he spoke little frequently appeared to be abstracted from the company, and more than once remarked that the place was greatly altered since he had last seen it. "'Many years have intervened since that period,' said he. 
and though the grand features of the scenery admit of no change, they impressed me with sensations very different from those I formerly experienced. Did these scenes, sir, said Blanche, ever appear more lovely than they do now? To me this seems hardly possible. The Count, regarding her with a melancholy smile, said, They once were as delightful to me as they are now to you. The landscape has not changed, but time has changed me. From my mind the illusion which gave spirit to the coloring of nature is fading fast. If you live, my dear Blanche, to revisit this spot at the distance of many years, you will perhaps remember and understand the feelings of your father. Lady Blanche, affected by these words, remained silent. She looked forward to that period which the Count anticipated, and considering that he who now spoke would then probably be no more, her eyes bent to the ground, were filled with tears. She gave her hand to her father, who, smiling affectionately, rose from his chair and went to a window to conceal her emotion. The fatigues of the day made the party separate at an early hour, when Blanche retired through a long oak gallery to her chamber, whose spacious and lofty walls, high antiquated casements, and what was the effect of these its gloomy air did not reconcile her to its remote situation in this ancient building. The furniture also was of ancient date. The bed was of blue damask, trimmed with tarnished gold lace, and its lofty tester rose in a form of a canopy, whence the curtains descended like those of such tents as are sometimes represented in old pictures, and indeed much resembling those exhibited on the folded tapestry with which the chamber was hung. To Blanche, every object here was a matter of curiosity, and taking the light from her woman to examine the tapestry, she perceived that it represented scenes from the wars of Troy, though the almost colorless worsted now mocked the glowing actions they once had painted. She laughed at the ludicrous absurdity she observed till, recollecting that the hands which wove it were like the poet, whose thoughts of fire they had attempted to express long since moldered into dust. A train of melancholy ideas passed over her mind, and she almost wept. Having given her woman a strict injunction to awaken her before sunrise, she dismissed her, and then to dissipate the gloom which reflection had cast upon her spirits, opened one of the high casements, and was again cheered by the face of living nature. The shadowy earth, the air and ocean, all was still. Along the deep serene of the heavens a few light clouds floated slowly, through whose skirts the stars seemed now to tremble, and now to emerge with purer splendor. Blanche's thoughts arose involuntarily to the great author of the sublime objects she contemplated, and she breathed a prayer of finer devotion than any she had ever uttered beneath the vaulted roof of the cloister. At this casement she remained till the glooms of midnight were stretched over the prospect. She then retired to her pillow, and with gay visions of tomorrow, to those sweet slumbers which health and happy innocence only know. Tomorrow to fresh woods and pastures new. End of Volume 3, Chapter 10